Let's go now to the reading of God's most holy word. I will admit that the selected texts are a bit, it's a bit strange. They're peppered throughout Genesis. You can try to follow along with me or you can just listen. I think I would actually encourage you to just listen to these texts that um, are spread throughout the book of Genesis. The first one is Genesis 1.1 where we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 2.4 these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Genesis 5.1 This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Genesis 6.9 These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Genesis 10.1 these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Genesis 11.10 These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arkpashed two years after the flood. Genesis 11.27 Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Genesis 25:12 These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. Genesis 25:19 These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, Abraham fathered Isaac. Genesis 36:1 These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. And then lastly Genesis 37:2 These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So far, the reading of God's holy word, we pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of it as well. Friends, there are only two things that I would like to accomplish this morning. Uh, first of all, I would like to make some introductory remarks about the Old Testament in general. And then secondly, I would like to make some introductory remarks concerning the book of Genesis in particular as we do prepare to enter into a prolonged sermon series through this wonderful book. First of all, some introductory remarks about the Old Testament in general. This sermon series through Genesis will be the first sermon series through an Old Testament book that I have preached here at Emmaus. Uh, we've dabbled in the Old Testament looking at a psalm or some other well-known text from time to time. Also, the Old Testament has been consistently read in our worship services prior to the preaching of the Word. And it has often been quoted in sermons to give support to or to help shine light upon the New Testament text under consideration. And so, the Old Testament by this time should not be altogether unfamiliar to us but the fact does remain that never have I preached verse by verse through an Old Testament book before in the life of this church. I'm not saying that I regret this. I think it was necessary for us to spend the bulk of our time in the New Testament in the early years of this church. And this was especially important given that most of us came out of a dispensational background. You heard me disagree rather strongly with dispensationalism through the Revelation sermon series, didn't you? Um, you have come to realize that I respectfully disagree with the premillennial system, 
but I am wholeheartedly opposed to dispensationalism. I view that system of doctrine as being not simply wrong on some minor points, but flawed to the core. It is fundamentally flawed. It is a distortion of the Holy Scriptures. Dispensationalism wrongly divides the word of truth when it makes a sharp distinction between the Old Testament and the New. I'm speaking very generally here, but I'm speaking truthfully when I say that dispensationalism in its classic form obliterates the continuity that exists between the Old Testament and the New when it claims that the Old Testament is law and that the New Testament is grace or gospel. I actually heard a dispensational preacher say that there was no grace at all under the Old Covenant or in the Old Testament, that it was only law. Uh, Friends, this is not the New Testament's opinion of the Old, and it is not the teaching of the Old Testament itself. In fact, both law and gospel are present throughout the whole of the Old Testament and the New And so here is why we spent so much time in the New Testament early on, and here is why in part we studied things like covenant theology and eschatology and eventually the book of Revelation. It was so important for us to cast off altogether that dispensational system, which when believed makes it nearly impossible to understand the Old Testament at all. Over time, we have come to see that It is the covenants which God has made with man that provide us with the major divisions of the history of redemption. And we have also come to see that these covenants are not unrelated, but are organically connected to each other, one building off of and advancing another. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I so look forward to showing you these things in the Old Testament text as we encounter them. It's going to provide us with an opportunity to consider these things very carefully and not quickly as we are now doing. For now, though, it is enough to say in this introductory sermon that we are not leaving behind grace, nor are we leaving behind the gospel of Jesus the Christ when we close the New Testament and open the Old. You understand that, I hope. As we will see, the grace of God was present and active in the world from the moment that Adam and Eve fell from their state of innocence and into sin. The gospel of Jesus Christ was preached to them. The Christ was present in the world then, not in bodily form. He would not come for thousands upon thousands of years, but in the form of promise and contained within the seed of the woman from which he would emerge when the fullness of time had come. And friends, please also understand that when the day comes for us to close the Old Testament, to open the New again, we will not believe behind the law of God. Christ did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. His church is not lawless. True as it may be that we are not under the law as Israel was, and that we cannot be justified by the law as no man after the fall ever could, with the exception of one, we are not lawless. God's moral law is for the Christian. It drives us to Christ as the Spirit of God uses it to convict us of our sin. It also shows us how we are to walk as we sojourn in this world. And so, brothers and sisters, as we give attention to the Old Testament, we will find both law and we will find gospel there. We will encounter Christ Jesus our Lord here in the pages of the Old Testament. He will be preached, therefore, just as He is when we have been 
in the New Testament and have the New Testament open before us. Uh, We will do what the apostles did in the earliest days of the church before the New Testament was ever written. They, friends, picked up the Old Testament and they preached Christ from it. When Paul summarized his ministry to the Colossians saying, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ, we should remember that his Bible consisted of the Old Testament scriptures only. It was the Bible of the early church. Christ was proclaimed by Christ himself and his apostles using the Old Testament scriptures only. Uh, Brothers and sisters, the radical dispensational division of the Old Testament from the New is to be disregarded. Instead, we are to see that there is covenantal continuity that exists between the Old Testament and the New. The grace of God and the good news of the Christ are contained within the Old Testament in the form of promise, and the same grace of God and the good news of Jesus the Christ are contained within the New Testament in the form of fulfillment. Indeed, the old saying holds true that the New Testament is in the old concealed and that the Old Testament is in the new revealed. There is continuity, my friends. Um, Indeed, the focus of all of Scripture, Old Testament and New, is to give all glory to the God who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth, all that is seen and unseen. The story that is told in the Bible from beginning to end is the story of creation, fall, And redemption. No, God did not begin His work of redemption in the moment that Jesus was born, as recorded for us in the four Gospels of the New Testament. But in Genesis chapter 3, God created all things seen and unseen. Man fell from his upright state, having broken the covenant of works. And God did immediately begin His work of redemption when He clothed the man and woman who were then naked and ashamed and promised to send one who would defeat the serpent through whom the temptation to sin did come. Creation, fall, and redemption. This is the story of the Bible from beginning to end, Old Testament and New. And it does develop beautifully from beginning to end. The climax of this story was the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Christ. It was there that the victory was won. It was there that the head of the serpent was crushed, mortally wounded. The central figure or or hero of this story of redemption is Christ. He did not arrive on the scene until the time was right, but he was known even to Adam and Eve. He was known by some of their descendants. By faith, they believed in the promises of God concerning the arrival of a Savior. They looked forward to him. They anticipated his arrival. They understood that God would one day accomplish redemption through the seed of the woman. The Christ was revealed to the elect of God in those days through promises, types, and shadows. Promises, types, and shadows. It is not difficult at all to understand what promises are. Uh, They are those direct and straightforward words from God in which He did vow to one day send the Savior to accomplish redemption, to inaugurate the new covenant, and to make all things new. We're familiar with the promises of God concerning the coming of the Savior. We call them sometimes prophecies concerning the coming of the Christ. The first promise of God concerning the Savior is found in Genesis 3.15. As you know, the Old Testament is filled with promises and prophecies concerning the Christ who was to come. 
Now, types and shadows are a bit more difficult to understand. Uh, They are historical events, people, places, institutions, and things which do, to one degree or another, reveal something about the Christ and the redemption that would be accomplished through Him. After Adam and Eve sinned, God covered their shameful nakedness with animal skins. Do you remember that episode from early in in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3? This was a historical event, wasn't it? Adam and Eve being real people who had really fallen, did indeed hide from God in their shame. They did indeed try to cover themselves with fig leaves, with, with, uh, with, with leaves. They tried to take care of their own sin problem, but God did approach them and, and, and He did cover them with animal skins. It was not an allegory. It's not an allegory that we encounter in Genesis chapter 3, but an actual historical event. But in the event of God Himself clothing the couple by shedding the blood of another, we learn something of the way that God would eventually accomplish our redemption, don't we? There is a kind of picture or or, or symbol or type contained within the historical event itself, which does point forward to an act of redemption that will be accomplished eventually by the Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Think also of the story of the sacrifice of Isaac on the mountain. Abraham went up on the mountain with his son, the son of promise, by faith, fully intending to return with the boy. But he took his knife and wood for the fire, and he lifted up his hand against the boy when the angel of the Lord restrained him. And there was a ram caught in the thicket. The Lord provided a substitute to be sacrificed. Again, this story is presented not as allegory, but as real history. But there is symbolism embedded within the event itself. The event was both real to Abraham and to Isaac, and it did also point forward to the great act of redemption that would be accomplished by the Christ who would die as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Romans 5.14, Paul explicitly identifies Adam as a type of Christ. And he does in that place show how Adam and Christ do correspond to one another. Uh, Put succinctly, both were federal heads or representatives of others. They represented others either in their obedience or disobedience. The one brought death to all who were under him, the other brought life to all who were in him, etc. But the point here is that Paul explicitly calls Adam a type of of Christ. Adam is the type, Christ is the anti-type. There is something about Adam and his historical life and his experience that does point forward to and shed light upon how it would be that God would bring salvation to his people in the fullness of time. The Old Testament is made up of 39 books uh, written by many different authors and over a very long period of time. Uh, the earliest books were probably written in the 15th century B.C., that is some 1,400 years prior to the birth of Christ. And the last books were to be written, the last books to be written were written some 400 years prior to the birth of, of Christ. Although there are a couple of sections in Daniel and Ezra, along with one verse in Jeremiah that were written in Aramaic, the Old Testament was written primarily in the Hebrew language. The whole of the Old Testament was translated into Greek by the end of the 2nd century B.C. Uh, This Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint, and it was widely used by the early church in the days of the apostles. It was the Bible of the early church. 
Brothers and sisters, the Old Testament is put together like this. First, we have the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Old Testament were written by Moses at around 1400 B.C. Uh, These books are often referred to as the Pentateuch, which means five books. After that, we have historical books. There are 12 historical books which were written from 1400 B.C. to 450 B.C. These books describe God's dealing with Old Covenant Israel from the death of Moses and the conquest of Canaan onward. I will not list them for you, but there are 12. And then we have five books of poetry which reflect upon God's greatness and His dealings with men. The book of Job, the book of Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And then after that, we have the major prophets. There are five of them, and they are called major because their books are long. After that, we have the minor prophets. There are 12 of those, and these are called minor prophets because their books are short. I think it is interesting to notice and significant that the New Testament is actually structured in a very similar way. First, we have the Gospels. There are four of them, and what do they tell us of except the redemption accomplished by Christ, which is a new creation? What does the Pentateuch tell us of, brothers and sisters, except the creation of all things seen and unseen and the eventual redemption of the people out of Egypt? Well, what does the New Testament books do except begin with that? The Gospels tell us of the new creation accomplished by Christ and the great redemption that He Uh, did accomplish by his shed blood. And the New Testament that we then have, the book of Acts, which tells us of the history of the early church. It mirrors, again, the pattern that we see in the Old Testament. And then after that, we have the letters of Paul and then the general epistles, which give instruction to the new covenant people of God based upon the redemption accomplished by Christ. And I am saying that these correspond to the prophets of old, the major and the minor prophets, as we now call them. What did the prophets of old do except speak to the covenant people of God, saying, here is your God and here is how you ought to obey Him in your lives today based upon what He has accomplished, that is, based upon the creation of all things seen and unseen and His redemption of uh, of the people from Egypt and His giving of the law. And so the New Testament and the Old are actually structured uh, in a very similar way, one to the other. In the New Testament, of course, the books conclude with the book of Revelation, which looks forward to the consummation. Uh, Friends, uh, with this brief summary of the Old Testament or introduction to the Old Testament in mind, I will simply say that I'm very happy to be in the Old Testament and to have the opportunity to preach Christ from it. My objective from this day forward is to to have balance, uh, to be in the New Testament and in the Old. I don't know if I will say that it will be equal, but at least there will be balance from this day forward. Now let me say a few introductory remarks about the book of Genesis in particular. The title, Genesis, means beginnings or origins. It comes from the first word of the book, which in English is translated, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Um, It would be a mistake to assume that this book of beginnings is only concerned to reveal to us the beginning of creation. I know that is where most of our minds go when we think of the book of Genesis and when, when we think of the phrase, in the beginning, we go immediately in our minds to the creation of the heavens and the earth. It is natural that we do that, but it is about more than just the beginning of creation. See how quickly the attention turns to other beginnings. In 2.4, the focus shifts to the beginning of humanity and God's purpose for the man and the woman who were together made 
in the image of God. In 3.1, we are told of the beginning of sin. In 3.15, we are told of the beginning of redemption. In 4.1, the beginning of the development of human culture outside of Eden is described. In chapter 7, we are told of the flood, which, as we will see, is a kind of new beginning. In chapter 12, we are told of the call of Abram, which marks the beginning of God's old covenant people. It is there, and in these chapters, and then in the chapters that follow, that the beginning of the old covenant is revealed to us. And so the story develops. Uh, The scripture reading at the start of the sermon might have seemed odd to you, but I chose to read those texts to demonstrate to you that the book of Genesis is truly a book concerned with beginnings or origins. 1-1 through 2-3 functions as an introduction or a prologue. It tells us of the beginning of the heavens and the earth. But in 2.4 we read, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, and what follows is a description of the creation of Adam and Eve. Brothers and sisters, where did Adam and Eve come from? What was their origin? What was their beginning? Well, we will find that man was formed by the God of heaven From the dust of the earth, thus the heading that stands above this whole section, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Where did Adam and Eve come from except the God of heaven and the dust of the earth? These are the generations or descendants of the heaven and the earth. The God of the heavenly realm used the dust of the earthly realm to generate the first man and from the man the woman was formed. The same pattern then repeats nine more times in the book of Genesis. And so we have a prologue followed by ten sections. First, the generations of the heavens and the earth, but then nine more after that. This is the book of the generation of Adam, and then his descendants are named. These are the generations of Noah, and then his descendants are named. These are the generations of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and then his descendants are named, and so on. And so forth. In each instance, this phrase functions as a heading after which the descendants of the person are named. And so clearly, the book of Genesis is all about beginnings or origins. Uh, what we will find is that these genealogies are designed to, in part, show the development of the gospel promise that was first delivered in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. What did God say to the serpent except this? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so these genealogies, as we encounter them throughout the book of Genesis, do trace two lines of descent in the world. There are those who belong to the evil one who are of the seed of the serpent, and there, there are those who belong to God, who are of the seed of the woman. They are children of promise. The genealogies of Genesis show the beginning stages of God's calling of a people for Himself out of this world. They show us God's redemptive activities in the world. So who wrote the book of Genesis? Who wrote this book? Now, the answer is that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Moses himself will not enter into the biblical narrative until Exodus chapter 2, Exodus being the next or second book 
of the Bible. So he will not enter into the scene until Exodus 2, when he is called by God to deliver his people from out of Egypt. But he is the one who wrote Genesis, along with Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus. We call these five books the Pentateuch. When did Moses write the book of Genesis? And friends, I'll ask that you pay careful attention here. Far from being mere Bible trivia, the details are crucial to our handling of the book of Genesis. When did Moses write Genesis? The answer is that Moses wrote the book of Genesis in the 15th century BC, that is some 1400 years prior to the book of Christ, to the birth of Christ, and approximately 3400 years in the past from our vantage point. And so this means that Moses was writing history when he wrote the book of Genesis. When he wrote of creation and the fall and the beginning of God's redemptive work, he was writing of things that happened a long time in the past from his perspective, thousands upon thousands of years in the past from his perspective. When he wrote of the call of Abram and the covenant that God made with him, for example, he was writing of something that happened 500 years before he was even born. Abraham lived some 500 years before Moses did. And I think a question that we should ask is, how then did Moses know about these things? How did he know about these things so that he could write about them with such certainty? Of course, we believe that God inspired Moses to write what he wrote. For all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. Our belief is that the Spirit of God did move him to write what he wrote. For no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.20-21 20 But I think we should take also into account the presence of oral tradition. Our view is that these truths did not just emerge in the world when Moses was inspired to write the book of Genesis, but that they were present in the world from the beginning of time and were preserved through oral tradition by God's elect. The facts of creation were revealed by God to Adam and Eve. They must have been. Were Adam and Eve there to witness the six days of creation? They were not. And yet, we know that the six days of creation and God's resting on the seventh were revealed to the first couple because they were called by God immediately to mimic God in this pattern of Sabbath keeping. The account of creation, for example, along with the account of the fall and of God's curse upon the serpent, the man and the woman, along with the first articulation of the gospel, was undoubtedly preserved by the righteous line that did come from Adam and Eve. Think of it for a moment. What do we see Adam and Eve's sons doing outside of Eden except making a sacrifice to God? One did well, the other not so well. But what are they doing except seeking to worship God? So something of God was, was revealed to them and something of the proper way of worship from that day forward was revealed to them so that it could be said that one sacrifice was proper and the other improper. And so no, these truths were not um, absent in the world until Moses appeared, 3,400 years in our past, but they were present and preserved uh, by the righteous line that did emanate from Adam and Eve. I think it is also interesting to note that ancient pagan cultures 
the Mesopotamians, for example, the Egyptians, etc. They have their own myths which explain the creation of the world, the presence of sin and suffering and the ongoing struggle between good and evil. What is intriguing is that these creation myths, these pagan creation myths, share some striking similarities with the biblical story as it is found in Genesis 1 through 3. Are you tracking with me now? These pagan creation myths share some striking similarities with the biblical story as found in Genesis 1 through 3. How are we to account for this, brothers and sisters? Without a doubt, these pagan creation myths existed prior to Moses' writing of the Pentateuch. They came first, in fact, if we're talking about them being inscripturated. Did Moses steal from them, therefore? Did he take their stories and then alter them to make what we now have in Genesis 1 through 3? When you send your children off to the university and some anti-Christian professor wants to challenge their faith, this is one of the things that he will say to them is, look, it's undeniable. These other cultures have creation stories of their own, and do you see the similarities? Can't you see that Moses just picked these things up and took what he wanted and disregarded what he doesn't want? Moses plagiarized. This is not inspired by God. Your story of creation is just one of many. How are we to account for all of these things? I think it is a question that we must answer and will return to in future sermons. But for now, I will say that the best explanation is that in the beginning, God really did create the heavens and the earth, as the scriptures say He did. Adam and Eve really lived in covenant with their Creator. They were in a covenant of works. They were truly tempted, as the scriptures say they were. They really fell and were given over to death. The reason that many cultures have accounts of creation that are similar, though they do, of course, differ very significantly from one another, is because they have an actual historical event or actual historical events as their starting point. But here is what pagans do. They take what is true and they alter it to suit their desires. They are idolaters by nature. We all are. They have a habit of making gods for themselves in their own image. They do not submit to God's revealed word, but rebel against it, twisting and distorting it at every turn. And therefore, friends, this explains the similarities that exist between Genesis 1 through 3 and the ancient Near Eastern cosmogonies and also the radical differences. But what do we find in Moses? We find true history as preserved by God's elect We find the true word of God as it came from Moses' hand as he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The miraculous deeds that he performed and the act of deliverance that was accomplished through him did prove that indeed he was a prophet of God. Just as the miraculous deeds performed by Jesus and the great act of deliverance accomplished by him proved that he was in fact the eternal word of God come in the flesh. Are you following with me now? Moses did not just show up on the scene and begin to write and say, here is the word of God but rather he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and in fact the miracles that he performed in the face of Pharaoh and the act of of deliverance that was accomplished leading Israel out of Egypt did prove that indeed God was with him. He did not write from scratch though. I do believe that these truths were preserved to one degree or another within the world via oral tradition being preserved by the righteous line that came from Adam and from Eve. And so Moses lived in the 15th century B.C. 
And he, when he wrote Genesis, he was writing in some places um, ancient history, ancient history. And to whom was Moses writing? May we answer this question. To whom was Moses writing? The answer is that he was writing to the Israelite people who had not long ago been rescued from slavery and Egypt. This was his original audience. He's writing to the Israelite people who had not long before been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They were wandering in the wilderness, remember. That story is told in the book of Exodus. Lord willing, we'll come to it someday. And they were sojourning towards Canaan, the land that God had promised to them. Friends, I think this is a very important observation. Do you remember how important it was for us to keep in mind that the book of Revelation was written, not first of all to us, but to seven churches in Asia Minor in the first century A.D.? That fact had a very significant impact upon our interpretation of that book. And the same will be true for the book of Genesis and for the whole of the Pentateuch, for that matter. It was written not first to us, but to Israel, freshly redeemed. Uh, Moses did not write what he wrote to respond to the claims of Charles Darwin. Moses did not write what he wrote to answer the question, how old is the earth? Moses did not write what he wrote to satisfy our modern scientific curiosities. Now, I'm not saying that the book of Genesis has nothing at all to say about those questions, but rather what I am saying is that Moses himself was addressing questions that are different than the questions that we often bring to the text of Genesis, particularly chapters 1 and 2. My feeling is this, uh, that we often get Genesis wrong because we come to it with wrong questions. The Israelites, remember, had been in bondage in Egypt for hundreds of years. They were now wandering amongst pagan people, and they would eventually enter into the land of promise to take possession of it from people steeped in idolatry. Earlier I said that some oral tradition must have been preserved concerning the creation of the heavens and the earth, of God's covenant with Adam, the fall of God's redemptive activities amongst the patriarchs. But I did not mean to suggest that the oral tradition was kept perfectly pure amongst all Israelites. I think far from it. The evidence actually points in the other direction. Even the Israelites had been corrupted by the paganism of the Egyptians. For what was their impulse when Moses left them to go up on the mountain? What did they begin to do? Do you remember? They began to make for themselves a golden calf so that they might bow down to it and worship it. Where did that impulse come from? Well, it came from their sinful hearts, of course. We are idolaters by nature now that we are in sin. But they learned it from the Egyptians, I'm quite sure of it. And even Aaron went along with it. So I am not saying that the, the truth of God was preserved perfectly by all Israelites, but I am saying that it was preserved by some. And of course, God did inspire Moses to write what he wrote. Why then did Moses write what he wrote? It was in essence to say this to the Israelites who had freshly been redeemed from Egypt, Behold your God. That is the message of the book of Genesis. Behold your God. Here is who your God is. Here is how he relates to the world which he has created. Here is the truth of sin. Here is the truth concerning what your God is doing in this world. It is a book that provides a worldview for the people of God who had been freshly redeemed. The book of Genesis contains true history. What it says about creation, life in the garden, etc., is true. 
but it is not bare history. Do you remember me using that phrase in our study of the Gospel of John? Anyone? It was a long time ago. I, I did begin uh, our study of the Gospel of John with this emphasis that the Gospels are true history. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They tell us true things. What they say is indeed true about the life of Christ. But they are not bare history. What the Gospel writers say, they say for a reason. They are selective in what they say because they are trying to make some point, some theological or doctrinal point. And I think the same is true with the book of Genesis. What it says is true. It is written as true history. Indeed, the rest of the scriptures look back upon it as if it were true history. But it is not exhaustive or bare history. It is history told with an agenda. If, if you were asked, what did you do yesterday? You might answer that question truthfully in many different ways. If you just got done saying to a friend, boy, I am really tired today, and then your friend asks you the question, what did you do yesterday? What are you going to tell your friend? You're probably going to emphasize those things that you did yesterday which have contributed to your state of, of, of being tired. You know, I woke up very early and my day was full. It was full of manual labor and then I went to bed very late and therefore I am tired. But if you are being interrogated by a detective and the detective says to you, what did you do yesterday? You'll probably provide a more thorough and careful answer to the same question. Are both answers equally true? We would say, yes, they are, though they might look very different on the surface. I think we get into trouble with the book of Genesis when we come to it asking questions of it that it was not written to answer. The book is designed to provide us with a proper view of the world. It is answering questions such as, who is God? Who are we? What was the purpose for which we were created? Why sin, suffering, and death? Is there hope for us? And where is it found? What has God been doing in the world? What is He doing now in the world? These are the kinds of questions that the book of Genesis is addressing. Brothers and sisters, we're going to move very slowly through the book of Genesis. I anticipate that we will be in the first section, that is 1, 1 through 2, 3, for at least three months we might spend a little less time in 2.4 through to the end of that chapter, and maybe even a little less time in chapter 3. Uh, from there, we will pick up the pace a bit in chapters 4 through 11, and a bit more in chapters 12 through 18. And my plan is to move uh, rather quickly from chapter 19 onward. I'm not even going to try to guess how long we will be in this book but I do trust that the Lord will use it to point us to Christ, to strengthen our faith, and to bring glory to His most holy name. My prayer, brothers and sisters, is that we would see the end for which God did make us, that we would be struck by the awfulness of our sin and rebellion, and that we would be overwhelmed by the love and grace of God shown to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we do pray for your help, don't we? Let's bow before him now. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, they are a light to our feet. We thank you for what they reveal, Lord. Uh, above all, we thank you that they do reveal you to us. Uh, Father, what greater gift can we have except the knowledge of you, the triune God who did in the beginning make the heavens and the earth. They also reveal to us the way of salvation. Lord, uh, Father, make us mindful of our sin and make us ever more grateful of the fact that you have been gracious to us and that you have provided a way for us to be right with you once more.
I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that their faith would be strengthened. I pray for those who do not yet know Christ that you would draw them to yourself. May you hold up Jesus before them. May they see him clearly. May they see his tremendous worth. May they bow before him, abandon all hope and self, and cling to Christ crucified and risen. Lord, this is our prayer. Accomplish it for the glory of your name and for our good. These things we say in the name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people say, Amen.